Faham. It's Daniel. Hope all is well. Uh, this week on the pod, we had John Cassidy. John Cassidy used to play in the Canadian Tour. He's now an instructor uh, based in Washington at the home course. Heard the home course is uh, an amazing course in Washington. Never been. Um, it's in DuPont. If anyone knows where that is, it's like North. Long story short, uh, John's a stud, really good player. We got to talk about, uh, you know, his experience playing. So overall, his overall like uh, philosophies on teaching and fitting. Uh, we talked about some of his favorite stories playing uh, on the Canadian tour, traveling around. Um, Anthony Kim, which is <laughs> hopefully we get some followers of that. You know, who knows what what that guy's up to. And then we we ended on um, talking about his experience at Augusta National. He caddied there. Uh, at the Masters back in the day and got to meet Gary Player and got to meet Tom Watson. Um, overall, John's a super humble guy, and I really hope that he comes back on. He said he would. So we're going to hopefully do a, an installment called Stick Talk because John's a stud. He's an absolute stick. Um, but I really hope you enjoy this pod, and I, I even threw an ad in for you. Enjoy. John Cassidy, how's it going, man? Good, Daniel. How you doing, my friend? Dude, third time's the charm, as they say, right? Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. crossed. We have good connection. <laughs> where Where are you at right now? I'm up at our uh, performance center here at the home course. Can you uh, talk me through that? It, is that a newer yeah. thing, or what's going on? Yeah, so we've, we've been open for a couple months here. Um, we've got our fitting walls up in here. we got heat, two bays, um, GC quads. Um, got our loft fly machines and this is kind of where we do the teach it and do the fitting and cool place to hang out for sure. That's awesome. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. It looks super nice, super high, uh, high end state of the art. It's nice. You know, I mean, there's, yeah. Well, the nice thing too is around here, there's nowhere to really hit out into the range and see the ball fly, but also use the technology. And so at least, at least up here and in the Northwest and, and in the South Sound where we're at, there's just no place public wise that you can come and get fit at a place like this and also see the ball fly. And so it's, it's a pretty cool deal. It's going to be pretty popular for sure. Do you, how, so how long has it been around for? Our grand opening was, uh, let's see here. I think it was October. I think we ended up opening in October. The plan was the grand open in September, but with supply chain and stuff like that, we had a few things that didn't show up. And so I think October, beginning of October, was about it. So going on two months being open. And you're pretty much like brand agnostic, right? So, I mean, we're, uh, we're outfit, we're outfit with all of Callaway, TaylorMade and Titleist. And so um, we've also, we ordered the, the lab putters, like the directed force putters. So we'll, we'll fit, we'll fit. If we're doing putters, we fit into those lab putters, but a lot of Callaway, Titleist, TaylorMade. Mostly. Do you like those lab putters, dude? I've seen them like all over Instagram. They're just kind of like a weird or shape that I've never really seen before. What are your thoughts on those? There's something to it. Like um, a couple of guys that I know have been using them. And I actually, Taylor made it made me a putter that I liked a lot. I was putting really good with it. But Shane, one of our pros was using it. And I just took it out on the putting green and putted with it a little bit. And there's something to those putters. Like I, I would, I would bet money that if I took one of those one of those directed force putters and put it up against anybody else's just stock putter. Nine out of 10 people are going to putt better with that directed force putter. It's just the way that it's, it's lie balanced 
there's no torque to the head. And so you're not having to manage the torque in the head. It, the face wants to stay square. You just got to manage the arc and hit it in the middle of the club face. But it's, there's putts I make with that putter I wouldn't make with a normal putter. There's putts that I see other people make with that putter they would not make with a normal putter. That I have no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So mm-hmm. there's something to it. Like, I would check it out if you haven't tried one, for sure. I'm talking like 30, 40, 50, 60 footers, like coming up over ridges, like putts you just wouldn't even expect to make. And you either burn the edge or you make one. I mean, it's crazy. That thing gets the ball started online really really well i i suggest anybody who's on the fence at least go try it i I promise you it isn't going to work worse than your putter regardless of what you're using they one of those putters will work pretty good i'd be surprised if most people don't get significantly better with one of those putters there's something to them for sure but you got to get fit for it you got to get fit for the right lie angle that's the most important thing. It's got to sit flat to the ground. Dude, I feel like that's really overlooked for, because I mean, now more and more people are getting fitting, fitted, excuse me. And like, there's more and more facilities like what you have right now. But when people think of, or golfers think of getting a club fit, which probably within the last like five to 10 years is more recent and more of a newer thing than it was in the past. Right. With all these like OEMs and all the techs. But like, what's interesting is like the next level to that is a putter fitting, dude. Like what percentage of the time are you even giving putter fittings? I'm assuming it'd be like very small, right? I mean, compared to clubs, yeah, not, not nearly as many. But if you think about it, you know, like the new drivers that are coming out for 2023, you're going to spend six to $800 on a stock driver. And you're using that club maybe at the most 14 times in a round, right? You're going to hit that club 14 times in a round. Whereas you're going to use your putter over half the times that you're hitting shots in a round of golf, right? So if you were going to spend $500 on a club, which one do you really think is going to benefit you more to have it fit perfectly to you? I mean, a driver, yeah, you might gain some distance, you might hit some more fairways, but if you could save five, six shots per round just by putting it better, you're not going to save five, six shots around with a better driver. Not on the long haul, unless you're just blasting balls out of bounds. You know what I mean? And so it makes sense that you should get fit for a putter. I mean, it's, it's, you're using it more than anything. You can gain more shots with a putter than you can with anything. And so I see people that are kind of, they'll balk at like getting fit for a putter, but they'll go spend eight or nine, a thousand dollars for a driver. You only hit it 14 times around. You know what I mean? Like if you could get rid of three putts and make all your short putts, that would go <laughs> for putting every green. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> right. It yeah. makes sense. That's really interesting, man. But I'm glad like you're able to, to go out and like educate these guys, you know, cause I'm assuming that's a big part of like a fitting as well as just kind of educating your. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, there's a, a lot of the things that people find interesting. I kind of just take for granted that it's information because I see it all the time. And a lot of it just kind of blends into a picture for me. You know what I mean? But things like spin rates and launch angles and um, different shafts and how they work it, you know, people find it pretty interesting, but I think it's because they don't really understand it. And it's not like it's super complicated, you know, like there's certain parameters based upon how you launch the ball and spin the ball that you want to be within to maximize your driver or your irons or whatever it is. Right. And so it's kind of just understanding what those parameters are and what maximizes what the club's going to do, given what a person's able to do as far as speed, 
and solidness of strike, you know, but it's really just about maximizing what they do in the conditions and getting the spin and launch right. You know, as an example, rule of thumb for an iron, when I'm doing a fitting, I want the spin on a seven iron, I mean, on any of the irons, but basically to be a thousand times the number on the club. So if it's a seven iron, I want to see that spin rate around 7,000. So maybe 75 to 65 is a good kind of rule of thumb for most players. But like, let's say you get a lady who's not swinging it very fast. She's not going to create a lot of backspin and she's not going to launch it really high. And so for that scenario, we need to get her ball up in the air and we need to get some backspin on the ball so that it actually stays in the air for a little bit. So like with a a woman who's not swinging it as fast, I'm going to try and get her ball launching higher and spinning more because that's what's going to keep it in the air longer. Whereas say if you came and got fit or if I was fitting myself, or a, a better player who swings it faster, the, the problem is going to be more getting the spin to stay down than it is not being able to have enough spin, if that makes sense. And so it really just, it depends on the variables of the person and what they need, but you're just trying to maximize those launch conditions. So the ball stays in the air as long as possible. And that's kind of just physics. So as, as a, as a pro, you know, like having transitioned out of like playing professionally now more in teaching and like also doing these fittings, what, what's sort of your favorite thing to do? Like for you personally, is it give lessons? Is it play or is it? Ah, you know, I mean, it's there. Yes. I mean, playing, if I've got a choice, yes, I'd love to go play and compete, but winning a tournament is great. And there's not many things that feel as good as that but you'll never get the fulfillment from winning a tournament that you will from having one of your students accomplish their goals. You know what I mean? Like there's a different fulfillment inside when you help somebody else be happy and achieve what they want to do in the game versus you working hard and achieving the things that you want to achieve. Right. And so it's very gratifying and it's very motivational to, I mean, see your student come in and work on something and get better and tell you they've played the best golf of their life. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's my way of being able to enrich other people's lives. You know, I can go win all the golf tournaments in the world, but that's not going to necessarily make other people's lives better, right? It's going to put more money in my pocket, give me some more accolades and trophies, but that doesn't necessarily help people. Right. Whereas when I'm fitting or if I'm giving a golf lesson, like I'm genuine, I'm like helping that person be happy with, the skills that I have to be able to deliver to them. Right. And so I'm a believer that a perfect world is you, you, you have a profession that you enjoy doing that helps make people's lives better. That helps make people happy, but you also get paid for it. Right. Like that's the perfect world scenario is you get, you can help people be happy and you can also get paid for it. And you're going to enjoy doing that. And you're going to be able to make some money doing it too. And so I would say that, the lesson, the private lesson is I really enjoy that. I enjoy the personal interaction with that person. I enjoy getting to know that person and kind of figuring that person out and, and learning what, what does this person need to play their best golf, right? Because some people need a kick in the pants. Some people need a pat on the back. Some people need an attaboy and just a high five the whole time, even though they're not accomplishing anything, right? They just need to be motivated to say, hey, hey, you're doing a good job. Keep working at it, right? You know, and so the challenge of that um, – is a fun challenge, but it's, you know, the better I understand people, the better that I can learn people, the better I am at giving golf instruction, right? Like it just, it becomes more efficient. It becomes a lot more 
you can get your message across easier. And so um, outside of winning a golf tournament, giving a golf lesson, you know what I mean? For sure. I love doing it. It's fun. It's a good, it's a fun challenge. And um, it's always a unique challenge. Each person. Yeah. It, it's pretty amazing to think like you can just go and fix someone's swing, you know, cause everyone has a fucking broken swing, right? Everyone needs help. And that's, what's the beauty of, of golf. But for you particularly, like, do you look for, like, will you take anyone that comes in and says, Hey, I want a golf lesson. Or do you only work with elite like amateurs or will you work with, you know, th- does it matter? Or will you kind of take anyone? I, I mean, I'll take anyone. And then if on top of that, who's your favorite person to work with? Um, I mean, I've got some really, like, is really there an cool... avatar or like, like this guy's this age? No, man. I, you know, I would say that it's different for different reasons. Like I've got a, some junior golfers that I love just hanging out with. They're cool kids. You know what I mean? We have fun. They've got great attitudes. Um, they're skilled. They practice, they work at it. They've got the drive. And then I've got, you know, there's some older guys, let's say that have a ton of limitations to their body, but they practice this stuff and they get better. And so I wouldn't say I've got a favorite. I, I enjoy the challenge of all of them. You know, I would say the thing for me is I don't, I judge myself probably harder than a lot of instructors do in that I don't feel like I should ever have a poor golf lesson. Like I don't feel like it's acceptable for any student of mine to leave their golf lesson, not feeling better, having a better understanding or actually being better when they leave. Like I don't subscribe to the theory that, okay, you got to go work on this thing and it's going to take you three months to get better. Like I should be able to make that person better in that hour that I have with them and also give them knowledge that's going to help them work on it and get better when they leave me. And, you know, thank goodness these days it doesn't happen that often, you know, when you have a golf lesson and where I feel like, man, we just didn't accomplish what I had hoped we would, or we didn't, we didn't gain on it. Like I was thinking we could. And for me, it bothers me. Like I will think about that golf lesson until I see that person again. And I'll think about, okay, well, how could I have said it better? How could I have said it differently? How could I convey this message better to this person so that they're getting kind of what I'm saying? Right. And I don't know if all instructors feel that way. Right. I think that, um, I think there's a lot of guys that probably go home at night, whether the lessons went well or went, didn't go well. And it is what it is. They'll come back the next day and they'll do it again. Whereas I don't accept that. And I feel like if I didn't get the, if I didn't accomplish something in that lesson, then I needed to be better. It's not the student's fault. I needed to convey the message better. And I think in that way, I'm constantly judging myself and I'm constantly judging how I'm doing things and I'm constantly refining things, you know? And so every day I come out and do it, I'm trying to become better at it than I was the day before. And um, I think that mindset is, you know, not all it's, it's what drove me to be good at golf, but it's also what drove me to continually become a better and better instructor each and every day. Cause you just, you never know it all. You're constantly learning. And if you're not constantly learning, then you're kind of doing yourself a little bit of a disfavor and your students as well. Yeah, dude, there's a so. lot to unpack there. So, I mean, you, you brought up you were a good player. I mean, for those of you who don't know, John is an absolute stud. Picks apart golf courses. I had a really great time playing with him with in Bandon because, you know, he's like the best player I've ever played with. And it, it's just different to play with a guy like John. It just feels different. It's not like you're going out and playing with your buddies. So that was really cool to see. But, dude, one thing I'm wondering is like, 
you know, how has your teaching style evolved over time since you came out of like the Canadian tour? Mm -hmm. Like, how have you grown as an instructor? Mm -hmm. And like, what has that journey been like for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I would be I would be confident in saying that every great instructor, every every instructor that is considered great right now didn't start off that way. And I think what the very best instructors do is they continually evolve what they teach and how they teach based upon what they learn and what works and what doesn't work, right? And so I know that you know when we've talked about it, when I was playing full-time, when I was in college, when I was playing full-time, I spent about 16 years taking lessons and working with the guys down at Butch Harmon School. And him being the number one instructor in the world for years and years on end, you come out of there and think that, hey, this has got to be the best way to do it. I mean, the best instructor in the world is teaching these things and he's getting these results from these tour players. So this has got to be the way to do it. And obviously, when I was playing full time, my goals were to continue to play. But when I got into teaching, the only thing I knew is what I knew, you know, what worked for me, what had worked in the past. I didn't have the experience of working with people and understanding that people are different. And so I honestly, you know, when I first started doing it, probably screwed some people up that I shouldn't have screwed up, you know, and the thing that made me start to question the knowledge that I had was, well, why doesn't it work for everybody? You know, why is it that certain things work for certain people and certain things don't work for certain people? And, you know, through the years, I mean, I've spent time working at Butch's place. I've gone take lessons from Jeff Costin. I've worked with Mike Bender. I spent time with EA Tischler. I spent time with um, just all kinds of guys along the road. Um, Scott Cox. Um, and essentially, I went on this journey of just understanding, you know, and it took me down a road of learning about different body types. And what I figured out in my, I'm not going to actually, I didn't figure it out. What I learned from other people is that certain body types tend to have certain matchups that work and certain body types have certain matchups that don't work. And once I started to understand the function of people's bodies and started to apply that functionality to matchups in a golf swing that I know that work instead of trying to apply a theory of the golf swing, right? Because I think that that's a big fad right now. And that happens in golf instruction is that people tend to latch on to like the hip thing at the time, right? And they try to apply that to everybody as if this is the only way to do it. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. I mean, you look on tour, no two golf swings are the same. No two grips are the same. No two club faces at the top, pitch of the shot, like body, like nothing is the same. And so the thought in my mind was, well, if, if the very best players in the world are all doing something different, their swings are just like fingerprints, then how is it that we can expect these, these people that aren't in as good a shape, aren't as gifted, aren't athletically as talented to swing based upon some theory of how it should be done, right? And once I started to just apply the functionality and started to create form through function, instead of trying to create function through form, things started to happen a lot more efficiently for me. Like things started to click in right away. It didn't take two, three sessions. It took five, 10 balls before I started to see a difference. Right. And so going down that road and I mean, gosh, we could, 
it could be a whole show talking about biodynamics that Mike Adams and E.A. Tischler created and these screenings that they created to measure people's bodies to basically, basically it's a screening to tell you where you should be in different positions in your golf swing. And there's a lot of stuff that's just way too in-depth and I don't think people need to think about, but there's certain things that I will look at in every single person I see for the first time, just so I can understand how their body functions. How does their elbow, how does their shoulder want to rotate? How does their hips want to turn? How much are they bent? To, like just the function of their body. What does their body want to learn? How does it want to work? And, and just learning how to apply and seeing those things in people and just, it's like an instant, like, boom, it doesn't, it's like, you just know where they need to be. And once they know where they need to be, it's amazing how much they start to react athletically. That's the amazing thing about the golf swing. Everybody is reacting to the center of mass, the balance point of that shaft and the club face angle. Those are the two things your body's reacting to the entire time. If those things are in alignment, your body will react the way that it should. If those two things get out of alignment, your body creates a scenario where that club is going to line up and square up to that ball in a way that it sends it to your target, whether it's right or wrong, right? And so it's just a matter of understanding that, okay, if this club face is, if I've got a lot of flexion at the top and this club face is really strong at the top, then I need to keep my hands leading and rotate through the ball or that, close is going to, or that club face is going to close down. I'm going to hit it left. Opposite would be true if I've got a cupped wrist at the top and I've got a fairly open club face. You can manage that club face if you do the things right on the way down, but you can't just keep your hands leading and rotate because that face isn't going to square up. So there's going to have to be some amount of your body stopping and the hand squaring that face at the bottom if there's a ton of, if it's open, or you're going to have to have a ton of rotation into the ball with your forearms. Those are the two ways you're going to square it up, right? And so understanding that, it, it, it makes things a lot clearer, right? Because this picture of the golf swing isn't this mystical thing. It's actually very simple when you understand why things happen. It's when people don't understand why the things are happening that the golf swing becomes super complicated. But it's really, it's really a lot simpler than people think. It's, it's actually absurdly simple. It's just that there's a lot of moving parts and there's a dynamic motion that has to happen. And if you don't create that pressure properly, you're not going to get that club to swing properly. And so, um, yeah, a, a whole, a whole bunch of words to get to basically, I just learned how the body functions and learned how to apply that. And it made things so much, so much easier as far as the full swing goes. And the other thing is people learn differently as well. Like some people are more like they're, they, they need to see things. They need to feel, so other people need to feel things. So that's like the other challenge, dude, just listening to you. It sounds like, you know, it's, it's like amazing what you do being an instructor to just basically show up, not know what you're going to get. Fucking just show up to the range. This guy, he could cup his wrists. He could, you know, leave it flat, whatever, have no idea essentially what you're walking into. On top of that, you don't know how this guy's a learner. You don't know his background. You don't know anything about him. And then you only have an hour on top of that to fix his swing. Dude, it just sounds fucking hard. Like, it's crazy. So I just want to give a shout out to all the instructors out there, dude. Thanks for doing what you do. Oh, absolutely. You know, like, it's pretty, like, to, to sit back and think about it, it's just like, holy fuck, you know? Well, I mean, you find your tricks of the trade, right? Like, as when you're a professional in something and you're good at it, you find your tricks of the trade. So when I'm meeting somebody for the first time, the first thing I do is I talk with them. I ask them questions. 
I see how they answer me. I figure out what they do for a living, right? Like I try to figure out with my questions who they are. What type of person is this, right? Like, and they may not realize what I'm doing, but I'm just figuring them out. I'm just asking them questions. I'm seeing how they answer. I'm seeing where it goes from there. Ask them some more questions, get a feel for them, right? And, you know, my dad was a poker player when I grew up, when I was growing up. And so maybe it's just an innate thing that I've got, but I can read people really fast. And so I can have a short conversation with somebody and get a pretty good feel for who they are, what they're kind of about. You know what I mean? Obviously, there's a lot to a person, but I can get a good read off of people. And so the first thing I do is I want to figure them out, right? I want to figure out as much as I can because for that exact reason, like the you have to understand who that student is. You have to start to figure out how this person learns best, right? Like I might give an example and I'm going to say it first, right? I'm going to verbalize it. Okay, this is what I want you to do. And I'll kind of see what they do. And then I'll kind of show them with my own swing and see, okay, can they make that feeling? And then I'll grab the club and make them do it and see how they learn it. And then I'll show them a picture of it, right? Because you're either going to, your auditory, your feel, you watch other people do it, or you watch videos, right? Like that, it's kind of the way that you learn different ways. And so I'm in all those things, I'm just kind of figuring out, well, how's this person picking up on it, right? Is it when I show them the video of their swing, is it all of a sudden like, boom, okay, I see it. Or is it when I grab that club and I physically put them into that position, is that where they start to feel it, right? And as an instructor, those are the things that I think separate great from not from from good instructors, it, those details, right? Not the Everybody has the knowledge. Everybody has a knowledge of what they're trying to get somebody to do in the golf swing. It's conveying that message. It's getting that person to turn your verbal cues into a feel because they've got to feel it, right? They've got to feel that motion. So everything I'm trying to do is trying to get them to understand what are you feeling? And that's what we need to replicate is the feel is turning that verbalization into a feel for them so they can start to replicate that motion. Right. And yeah, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a dance trying to figure out the best way to do it for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. But like for me, as someone who like, just like, I love, you know, I love golf. I'm always like on my page, everything is golf, this golf, that YouTube golf, this golf, that like golf tips here, golf tips there. And I think that that's kind of like the reality of the internet right now. If you're in this golf niche, you know, like part of it is instruction Mm -hmm. and like, there's just so much content that exists out there Mm -hmm. uh, for people to, you know, try to improve their swing or, you know, become a better golfer. So for someone who doesn't necessarily have access to like a phenomenal or a great instructor, what would you advise them to do? Like, where would you say, Hey, here's block one. Once you kind of get this, go to the next step. Like what would you do if you didn't have access to an instructor and you just had the internet? Like how would you? Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of information out there. I think it's a blessing and it's a, and it's a curse too. I can't, I can't sit here and say this guy's good and this guy's bad, right? Go listen to this guy. Don't listen to that guy because it just depends on who you are. depends on how it drives with you. But what I would say is this, figure out how to set up to the ball properly. Okay. Figure out how to get grip the club, set up to the club, set up to the ball, get your posture, get everything prior to you taking the club away, get that part down. Like the grip. I mean, every lesson I give, I'm going to look at someone's grip right now. The grip is like a fingerprint in that 
depending on the function of your swing, not at like, not everybody needs a really strong left-hand grip. Some people need a weaker left-hand grip. Some people need a stronger right-hand grip. Some people need a weaker right-hand grip. It depends on your swing. It depends what you do, but you do need to have your hands on the club in a way that when that club head releases, it squares up. It doesn't come through open. It doesn't come through close. So figuring out how to get your hands on the club properly, figuring out how to set up to the club properly. Um, whoever you watch, and everybody's going to pretty much tell you the same stuff as far as the setup goes. Um, but get the setup down. Get the setup down. And then essentially in the golf swing, once you're set up to it properly, you've got to do three things well to have a good golf swing. And it's simplified, but this is essentially it. You've got to have a good arm swing. So you've got to be able to swing your hands and arms in a way that delivers the club head onto the ball solidly and delivers it onto the ball squarely. You've got to have a good body pivot. So you've got to get, you've got to have a good pivot back, a good pivot through, and you've got to be able to pressure shift through the ground properly. Now you pivot, how you pivot has a direct relation to how you pressure shift through the ground. But if you can do those three things well, you'll hit the ball good. Like you'll hit the ball solidly and you'll hit the ball well. Um, but the it's a super simplified answer. You know what I mean? It isn't quite that simple, but it is that simple. And so what I would say is get your setup down. B, what I would say is learn how to move this club with your hands and arms properly. Learn how to hinge your hands. Learn how to deliver the club head onto the ball squarely. And do that on some short shots. And then I would really get into learning how to pivot your body, your body properly because you're not going to create speed and efficiency if you don't pressure shift properly. And if you don't do that, your pivot's not good. And if you don't pivot, you can't pressure shift. But that's that's kind of where I would start with it, you know, and work on your short game, you know, work on your short game, work on your bunker shots, work on the putting, you know, work on all the stuff that's actually going to help you score. I mean, I think it's important. I think that uh, people overlook how much working on your short game can help your full swing. For sure. Definitely, man. Dude, before we get into your playing career, like a nice little transition, I'd say, would be, you know, like how has being a professional player impacted your ability to give lessons and like just you as an instructor overall? Is there like any takeaways you have? Like what are your just general thoughts on that? I would say that, well, first off, it's hard to tell somebody how to shoot 62 if you've never shot 62, right? It's hard to tell somebody how to win a golf tournament if you've never actually won a golf tournament. And so the fact that I've won a lot of golf tournaments and the fact that I know how to shoot really low scores gives me the understanding of how to do it, right? So I understand that there's a formula. Each person has their own formula to playing their best golf. And we each have to figure out what that formula is, whether it's you know how you practice or play or things like that. But you got to figure out your personal formula. And so for me, the benefit for me from, from coming from a playing background is that I understand what it takes to get the most out of a person's game. Like I understand what it takes to reach your maximum potential. And I honestly don't believe if you have never done it, how are you going to tell somebody else how to do it? You know what I mean? It's like winning a golf tournament. If you've never won a golf tournament, how are you going to tell somebody else how to win a golf tournament? Because you've never experienced the feelings, emotions, adrenaline, preparation, everything that goes into winning a golf tournament, right? And so 
from that standpoint, I understand what it takes to play really good golf. I understand what it takes for people to maximize that. And so when we're practicing, I'm not only going to talk about the physical parts of it, but I'm always mixing in the mental part of it. I'm always mixing in the preparation part of it. I'm always mixing in the practice part of it and how to be efficient with your time or how to go to a golf course and prepare for a tournament or how to leading up to a tournament, practice your game in a way to where you're not wearing yourself out, but you're sharpening that blade right to the point of it not getting dull, right? Because if you sharpen it too much, that blade starts to get dull. So it's finding that that formula for reaching your potential and getting the most out of it. And that's certainly a huge benefit for me to be able to help people and understand what it takes for them to reach their, the potential for sure. So, um, and also just being around a lot of really great players and knowing how they've done things and being able to share that, the stories and the experiences. And, um, I mean, that's certainly, it's certainly, it's good to have that. It's good to be able to tell stories. You know what I mean? As an instructor, you got to fill the time. You got to fill the space sometimes. So being a good storyteller. <laughs> great to have you, dude. That's why I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. You know? <laughs> Not only are you a great instructor, you're a great storyteller. Sure. But dude, so I want to get into some of these stories, yeah. man. Like when were you at your best? Like in your eyes, when were you like the most savage you've ever been, bro? Like, can we can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think right out of college on the Canadian Tour, first couple of years on the Canadian Tour, that's probably the best golf that I ever played. Although I would say that a few years in the section, I played probably the most consistent golf that I ever played. Um, but I wasn't practicing and playing as much. Um, but yeah, it, w- it would have been kind of out on the Canadian Tour because I was playing full time. I mean, I was practicing and playing golf more than most people were working jobs. You know what I mean? And so... Um, I was about as dialed as I could be back then, for sure. Working out, doing everything, you know, eating right, doing it all. That'd probably be How did you break your routine down to become good? Because you've already always been blessed. You've always been a stud. Like, how did you like sharpen that blade? So what, what helped me is I would, like when I was playing full time, I would map my day out down to the minute. And so I'd never had a problem working for just obscene amount of hours on a golf game. But what I would do is I would break down to the minute my practice sessions and it would include everything. I mean, if it were putting, it would include, you know, working on like a plain board with a metronome, working on confidence putts, which are eight feet and in, working on speed, working on green reading, and then working on the process, right? If I were going to go hit balls, I would take, the first 10 minutes and just work on my setup. So I'd put some sticks down and I would just go through my setup and my process and work on going through my process and getting lined up properly, making swings without actually hitting the ball and like visualizing watching the ball fly. And then I would set up with those sticks and I would go through my bag warming up, just hitting shots at a target. And then when that same day I might do like a driving drill where, okay, I've got to get, 10 out of 14 drives in a make-believe fairway, curving it both directions. Um, And then I might do the same thing with some irons. And then I would go hit some wet shots and work on like 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 yard shots. Then I would spend some time hitting pit shots from like 25 yards and in. Then I would hit some chip shots and then I would hit some bunker shots. And I would do all this every day. I mean, it was every day and I would just switch it up from day to day. So if I were going to do like green reading drills, let's say. Um, one day I would do one green reading drill. And the next day I would do a different green reading drill. 
And then the next day I would do a different one. And then I might go back to the original one, but every day would be different. And so I just structured my practice in a way where it, it worked on all areas, but it also changed every day. And so it was never the same thing, but it was, it was very diligent down to like the amount of time I was going to do working on each thing, um, down to like the minute. Um, and I would include everything that you could think of. I mean, it was, if there was, if there was something I could think of to put into my practice to make sure I covered that base, I did, you know, like I just tried to, tried to focus and cover every single thing I could every single day, basically. And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you ask like, how did I get so good? I mean, I remember being a kid and hitting balls until my hands bled and putting band-aids on and wrapping my hands up and going and hitting another 200 golf balls. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's just the way that I was. I just would work on it to the point that I felt like it couldn't get any better. And I would just do that every day and every day I would do it. And I would just continually stack those days on top of each other and those days stack and the months stack and the years stack. And eventually you just kind of figure out your way to do it. You know, you figure out your best ways of doing it and you just refine that. And the tough part is, you know, it's like going from a two handicap to a zero handicap, right? Like it's way tougher to go from a two to a zero than it is to go from an eight to a two, right? Well, it's the same thing. If you're a plus five or six and you're trying to figure out, well, how do I gain a shot around? Well, you're only going to do it in like tenths of shots. You know what I mean? Like you're going to gain a tenth of a shot here and you're going to gain a tenth of a shot there. And maybe by the end of the day, you've gained three quarters of a shot, right? But it's these little tiny increments that you're starting to gain. And, and, it's tough to refine those things past a certain point because you got to get the ball in the hole and the hole is only so big. The hole doesn't get any bigger. And, um, and so, but that's kind of the way you got to go about it. If you want to get and become the best you can be, you've got to attack the game in that way. You, you really do. One thing I kind of want to take it a little bit of personal, man, because I feel like I'm talking to Kobe, you know, like Mamba (laughs) mentality. How did you develop that? Like, was that something you developed in your childhood or like, did you have a mentor? Have you always been like this? It sounds like you have, how did this come about? And like, what was your driver through, you know, winning in, in high school and college and like being on tour? Like, what does that look like for you? Or how did that come up? You know what I mean? I, I mean, and there's probably a few things, some are good and some, you know, maybe aren't good, but turned out good. But I mean, my dad's work ethic, like my dad worked his ass off, man. Like that guy worked obscene hours trying to provide for me as a kid and and just to provide the opportunities that I had. And so I certainly think I gained my work ethic from seeing how hard my dad worked. Um, But I think that ultimately, and I've thought about this just to kind of think about, well, what was the driving cause? I, one would be I hated losing. Like, I hate losing. Like, I can't stand losing. Like, it it bothers me more to, like, it bothers me more to lose than the joy to win, right? And so that fear of losing or that fear of failure always drove me. And I think the other thing is that as a kid, right or wrong, like, I, my self-worth was attached to my golf, right? So, like, uh for one reason or another, as I was brought up, like it wasn't okay to lose, you know? And so like I developed this mindset that winning is the only acceptable thing. And if you don't win, then, you know, it's not acceptable. 
And so when you have that, and, and ultimately this is something as an adult that I had to detach from, but when your self-worth is attached to your performance in a game, you're either gonna you're either gonna fail on purpose and feel like crap, or you're gonna try your best to make sure you don't. You know what I mean? And for me, I wanted to feel good. You know, I wanted to feel good about myself, and so I always just had that drive of I'm gonna just outwork everybody. You know, I'm gonna work out. I'm gonna outwork everybody because at the end of the day, I could lay my head on the pillow knowing that. I just worked harder than everybody else. And I did absolutely everything I could on that day to get to my goal. And as long as I could do that every night, you know, then I could go to sleep and I could feel okay about it. But if I didn't, then I'd lay there in bed and think about it a little bit. So I just would continually every day, just do everything I could to get closer and closer to that goal and just work as hard as I could. And, and I could go home and sleep okay at night. And so that it, it's a lot of things, you know, like life, it's funny, the things that drive us, you know, but that's certainly something that um, that drove me a lot. And then as I got a little bit older, it was the proving people wrong. You know, I've never been a big guy. I've never hit it really far. And I think there's, I think I've exceeded expectations for a guy my size and my physical ability. And so it always drove me to prove people wrong, even to this day. You know, I'll manufacture something in my head to drive myself to work at things to prove somebody wrong, because I know that's the thing that continually drives me. You know what I mean? And so that's another part of it. I always wanted to prove people wrong and prove to people that I could do the things that maybe they didn't think I could. And, um, and so that was always a constant motivating factor too, that that always lit a fire. So for you personally, like how has your game evolved? Like if, if you were to look back at, you know, your game in that time, and now how, how has your game evolved? And, and also like, how would you just describe your game? Because dude, watching you, it's like, it's like a master. Yeah, dude. I'm yeah. telling you, like, I, I still watch some of these chip shots you hit at Bandit and, and like, they're fucking beautiful, dude. Um, so, like, how would you talk someone through your game if, if you had to talk them through it? I would say that, you know, my game's not as good as it once was right now. Um, but I would say my game was just one of consistency and I didn't make a lot of mistakes, you know? Um, I hit the middle of the club face most of the time. I hit it straighter than most people do. Um, I drove it really straight. I had a really good short game and a really good wedge game, and I always I always was a great putter. And so I, I always felt like I never really had any weaknesses other than lack of distance, if anything. I just didn't hit it as far as everybody else, but I hit it better than everybody else. And so I would say my game's just one of kind of boring consistency. I'm going to hit a lot of fairways. I'm going to hit a lot of greens. I'm going to stuff some wedges. I'm going to pitch and chip it well. I'm going to putt it well. And, you know, it's it's just, it's kind of boring golf. But when it gets going, you know, my irons, they, they stack on top of the hole, you know, and kind of can get into grooves where my ball doesn't want to leave the flag sometimes. And in those times, you make a lot of birdies and you kind of let it roll. Um, but that's kind of my game. I'm going to drive it well. I'm going to drive it straight. I'm not going to hit it super far, but I'm going to be in play. Um, I'm going to position my ball around the course so I can take advantage of the holes and the pins. And I'm just going to be really efficient and score with my wedges. You know, get get through the tough holes with pars and eat up the holes with wedges and the par fives. But that's kind of my game. I'm not going to overpower it. I'm just going to kind of mm-hmm. plot my way around. 
No, for sure. Super methodical, but mm-hmm. also deadly. Because you get on these heaters, bro. Yeah. And it's like, all right, well, he's going to make everything he sees. <laughs> <laughs> it happens like that sometimes. It feels like that. Yeah, sometimes. it's like the hole is like a it's like a bucket, dude. <laughs> but but for you, like, what are some of your, your favorite memories on the Canadian tour when mm-hmm. you look back and reflect? Because it's been a couple of years now. It's been a while, you know. Is, was... is there a couple of memories, like one or two, that really stick out? There's certainly a couple of things that I'm never going to forget. Um there was, let's see here. So we were in um, Mexico when the swine flu kicked off. I don't even remember that. When like the whole swine flu thing happened. And so we were in San Luis Potosi. That was pre-COVID, right? It was a little bit before COVID. Um, and Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> we were canceled. The, um, we were in Mexico and we were, I think we were on the last trip of like a four-week stretch. And this whole swine flu thing was kind of happening. And we were in San Luis Potosi. I remember this. And before the tournament started, they started just shutting down all these airports. And so when it happened, you know, everybody's wearing masks and everything, you know. And so you go to the store, no masks. Like you could not find a mask in Mexico anywhere. And so people are cutting up their shirts and they're wearing them around their face. And so what ended up happening is, the airport's all closed around San Luis Potosi and it's kind of in like the, it's a bit, it's probably like eight hours South, eight, 10 hours South of Mexico city. And so the only airport that was open where we could potentially even get out of the country was in Mexico city. So what they did is they ended up chartering a bus. There was probably 40 of us that got on this bus, drove eight hours up to Mexico city on this bus. All tour guys, all tour guys going in the airport to get on this flight, we were all just tripping and thinking we were going to get stuck in Mexico because all the airports were shutting down. The only airport was Mexico city. Fortunately, we got on a flight and got out of the country, but that was, that was definitely a scary deal. That was an interesting deal. And actually another time in Mexico, um, this was in Puerto Vallarta. The host hotel was probably like 30 minutes away from the golf course. And obviously things are a little different, different in Mexico than up here in the States. And they were shuttling us on shuttle buses from the, from the host hotel to the golf course back and forth each day. And the local taxi drivers had found out about it and they were upset because they felt like we were taking, they were taking a bunch of money out of their pockets for these taxi fares. So one day we're getting ready to go out to the golf course. We're all loaded up on the, on the bus and like, 30 taxi drivers come into where we're parked with that bus and they block us in to this parking lot and they're not letting the bus driver take us to the golf course. And so what ends up happening is we had to, I don't know who did it, but the officials had to pay off these taxi drivers so that they've let the bus take us to and from the golf course. But that's the stuff that happens in Mexico or like another country that it would never happen in the United States, you know, but when it's happening, you're like, oh man, this is kind of crazy. You know, like mm-hmm. it's interesting. That's wild, dude. That was, um, those are a couple of funny things that happened, um, down in Mexico. Definitely some party and definitely some, some dark alleyways and, and some late nights too. But, um, yeah, no, there's definitely some, some good times had. But, um, I mean, honestly, just the travel. I enjoyed the travel. I enjoyed being in a new place every week and staying in hotels and having to pack your stuff and get on flights or get rental cars and figure out your way to and fro getting across the country and figuring it out. Um, 
that was probably some of the most fun. But from like a logistics point, from like a logistics standpoint and, and like just thinking about your team, like did you have a caddy that like would basically, you know, travel with you or, or what does that look like as far as life, the day-to-day life on like a tour? And is, is that a grind or can you talk a little bit more about that? Like the intricacies of that yeah. for people who don't necessarily there were probably like, or like maybe like a handful five or ten guys that had caddies at the same caddy every week most of the time you're just picking up a local caddy whether it be a high school kid or a volunteer that wanted to caddy so as far as the caddies go it was just random week to week sometimes you got good ones sometimes you just got guys to carry your bag and you're hoping they were going to stay out of the way um as far as the travel goes you know there was some really nice hotels that we stayed in. There were some really not nice hotels that we stayed in. I remember staying three or four people to rooms at times, you know, most of the time you'd have one and another guy, but certain weeks lodging was tough and you'd have a few guys to a room or you would get host lodging, like some tournaments, certain spots, they'd have host families where they'd host you and you could go stay there for free. And so if you could do that, you take advantage of that. Um, because ultimately out there, everybody's, nobody's got a ton of money and you're not making a ton of money either. So any way that you could find to save on costs or, you know, if you miss the cut, things like that, you're still having to pay for the week. You're still paying for everything. And so any way that you can save money on those ways, there's, you pinch your pennies and you do it, you know, but I don't, I would say the worst hotels were in Mexico. Like a couple of those host hotels in Mexico were, were pretty gnarly. But for the most part, the ones that we stayed at up in Canada were all pretty nice. They were all, they were all not too bad. <laughs> but what about like course quality as well? Yeah. Like, you know, were you, were these courses like, what, what was that like? I mean, I'm assuming, you know, they were, they were awesome, but maybe not as great as like obviously a PGA tour course, yeah. right? Like generally were they always in like prime condition? I would say generally they were in the, best condition the courses could get them in. You know what I mean? Um, most of the courses were not mm-hmm. tour level quality, you know, um, and not, not necessarily from a conditioning standpoint, as much as just a difficulty standpoint, you know, the golf courses weren't as tough. They weren't as long, but we got a f- gamut of everything. I mean, we played on um, little 6,200 yard courses in um, Seaforth, which is basically just a little public course that's there. It wouldn't be any different than most public courses around your place, right? And then we played on some super high-end courses in Mexico or up in Canada that were, yeah, they were every bit as good as a tour course. So there's, it's, you get the full gamut. But I would say for the most part, at least on the Canadian tour, the courses are good. You know, they're all good golf courses, um, but they're not quite at like your tour quality congressionals and Oakmonts and top, top golf courses like that. But you played some pretty good tracks played some good courses along the way Mm -hmm. dude so as far as like canada golf goes i mean it's such a big country Mm -hmm. like i'm assuming you get all different types of golf courses right like can you talk a little bit about that Mm -hmm. as far as like the diversity of golf courses go and like i'm assuming there's some link style and like when i think of canada i think of the forest and fucking grizzly bears right i'm thinking you're you're right in the thick of it yeah i mean it's but i'm assuming like it's there, you can find anything, right? You can find anything. I mean, if you go up in the BC, it's going to be a lot like the Northwest here in Washington, right? You're going to have a lot of tree line courses. Um, mm-hmm. The architecture is very similar. The green structures are very similar. And then you kind of make it over to the Midwest, like Saskatchewan, um, 
in that area, uh, Calgary, like you start to lose the trees, you start to get more kind of prairie and the courses get a little more linksy, a little more wind. Um, and then as you kind of get to the East coast, it, it's, it's the same thing as like the States that are South of it. Right. Like once you get above Michigan, the courses are very similar to Michigan. Once you get over to like Ontario, the courses are very similar to like New York, you know what I mean? The style and everything, but yeah, it's just like going across the top part of the United States from the West to the East. And as you go across the same kind of golf courses you encounter down here is the same kind you, you encounter up North, like in Calgary, it's very much like Montana, massive mountains, um, a lot of elevation, um, big hills, big rolling hills, um, and so you get the whole kind of gamut going across for sure. Um, but very similar, very similar, like the United States, really, when you get on them, you don't, you don't feel like you're in a different place necessarily for sure. Right. What about like, uh, just something that's coming to mind is like players, like as you, as a pro, obviously you're, you're at the top of your game, but like, were there any guys that you played with, whether it be in college or on tour where you're like, holy fuck. Like this guy has just, there's just something different, whether it's, you know, like the way they can manage themselves around greens or the, the way they hit the ball or, or the way, you know, they carry themselves. Like, was there anyone that really stood out to you? Uh, I and mean, like, yeah, I mean, I played with, like, oh, played with Anthony sure. Kim and I played with um, Martin Laird and I played with Adam Hadwin and played with uh, Graham Dillette and played with Andres Gonzalez. And I mean, different, diff- like they're all, they're all human beings, you know what I mean? So everybody's different, you know, they've all got their personalities, but I mean, Anthony, Anthony is one of the best I've ever seen. I mean, even as, even in college, the guy was as good as a tour player. He just, just didn't miss golf shots. Um, Graham was an amazing ball striker. The dude hit it super far and super straight. Um, Adam Hadwin, the times I played golf with him, I wouldn't say like he wowed me. It's especially in college. We played against, we played with their team quite a bit in college. And I never thought when I played with them that this guy was going to be on tour and, and literally just play his whole career out on tour, you know, make millions and millions of dollars. He worked really hard. He had a good game, but it wasn't, it wasn't like world beater good. Um, Martin Laird was really good. Um, kind of felt like, yeah, this dude's got a chance to be out on tour. But again, it wasn't like, like Anthony Kim, as far as back in those days was the only guy where I played with him. Like, yeah, that guy's good. Like that guy is no doubt going to win on tour. Like he's just, there's just no way he hits it too good. He does everything too well to not be successful out there. Um, but was he going like stupid low in college as well? He was. Like, I mean, he like, was partying everything? a ton in college too. So like whatever he did do, he could have done a lot more. I mean, like he could have done a lot more if he really wanted to. Um, but yeah, I don't know how many times he won in college, but I know he won a few times in All-American. And, um, yeah, dude was dude was really good. And he hit it far. I mean, he did everything. He did it, wedged it good, pitched it good. But he did everything. Everything was perfect. Like everything he did technically was perfect. Like it couldn't be better. Yeah, dude, he's kind of just like this elusive guy in the industry. It's kind of wild that you were able to play with him. Yeah, he's it's it's an interesting story. I mean, he, I'm not surprised because like we've talked about it. It's, it's I remember his senior year right before he it wasn't his junior year of college right before he dropped out of school and turned pro, and he just straight up said was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna 
I'm going to make my millions on tour and I'm going to retire and party on the beach. I was like, okay. I think the dude won like one of his first starts as a, as a pro. I mean, that's just ridiculous right out of college. It's too bad too. Cause I would have been really curious to know what that guy could have done if he had been out there for a while and, and really seen what, what he could have done. Yeah, he's definitely – he needs, like, a little Netflix special or something about him, you know? He's just one of those guys who are like, oh, like, really interesting, captivating guy. Um, all right, dude, I don't want to keep you too long, but I was hoping we could we could end on the master story and, and just, like, your overall experience at, at Augusta. Yeah, so uh, basically how I got got to go to Augusta is um, in the Pup Links in 2000 and it was either six or seven up here at Gold Mountain in Washington. Me and Casey Watabu were both playing in the tournament. And he was, Casey was my teammate in a bad end. I lost my second round match and started caddying for him. And he kept winning and he ended up playing. He actually ended up playing Anthony in the final and ended up beating him. And uh, when he got done, he was like, hey, man, you want to caddy for me at Augusta? And I'm like, for sure, for sure. And so... Yeah, it's a it's a great experience. I I got to go there a week before the Masters and be Casey's guest. And so, as is, I mean, you know, basically Casey's a member at Augusta once he wins that tournament through through the Masters week. And so he was there a couple weeks early, but I went there one week early and got to go in the got to go in the Champions locker room and got to go into the grill and got to go into the crow's nest and go around the clubhouse and go into all the places you'd want to go and see when you're at Augusta. Um, and it's and it's a special place, man. It's a special place. It's funny is one of the assistant pros there, and I can't remember his name. But the first time I saw him, he came up to me and he's like, "Hey, John, how's it going? I'm such and such. Nice to meet you. Welcome here. Can I do anything for you? Let me know." Blah 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 blah. And you know, I thought it was impressive that he knew my first name, first time ever seeing me, because that is the first time I ever saw him. But every time I saw him that week, he called me by my first name, John. And the thing about it is I don't even know how many dudes this guy had to talk to that week, but I guarantee he knew every single guy's name. You know what I mean? And I think he's like, I, I, he went on to be the head pro at some really big golf course somewhere, obviously, but it's just the way that it is there. You know what I mean? Like it, they do everything right. The course is perfect. It's, I would say for anybody that hasn't been there, the Hills, and how hilly that golf course is, is the one thing that catches everybody off guard. You don't realize how much that course is literally sitting on the top of a hill until you're there. I mean, you can see down almost to the bottom of the golf course down by Ray's Creek when you're standing up on the first hole down this hill. I mean, it's a, it's a really, really? hilly golf course. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a, it was a great learning yeah, experience. I didn't realize it was that drastic. Like you hear about it on TV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, they replant the course. Like, Go ahead, I don't know sorry. if they replant the course every year or every year if they only replant certain parts of it, but the grass is almost new every year. So that was a thing that, that shocked me when I got there. Cause a lot of times when you play these older golf courses that are immaculately maintained, the grass has been there for a while. So it's like really, de- it's hard to explain, but like, if you go to a brand new golf course and you look at the grass, it's like, it's not as dense as like an older style golf course that's got old grass where the roots are really in really strong and you've got this really like dense grass. Like it's perfect at Augusta, but it's like brand new. And so same thing with the greens. Like I remember looking at the greens and they were perfect, but they looked brand new. They looked like they had just planted them. 
and the caddy had told me that, yeah, they, they redo the greens like regularly. And they've got these laser, this laser system where they can put it down on the green and they can get the contours to be exactly the same every time they do it. And so, um, I thought that was interesting. I wouldn't have, I didn't realize they did that, but that's part of the reason why there's like zero Poana and it's like 100% bent, 100% rye grass all year until, until they get a little bit of Bermuda in there. Wait, so did, did you walk this with an actual caddy who like does that full time? And was he just giving you game for 18 holes as far as like how Casey should play, like what his lines were off the tee or what did that look like? Not so much like lines and stuff off the tee, but I'll say like those caddies, man, they're out there so much that they just, they just look at these putts and they know how they're going to break. You know what I mean? And so the tricky thing about those greens is everything breaks down to Ray's Creek, but there's a lot of these little subtleties within the greens. And so they're super tricky to read, but yeah, these guys could just look at these putts and be like, yeah, two balls outside the right or yeah, you know, it's three feet outside the right. Like, they just have seen so many putts on these greens. They don't even carry, like, an artist book with them. They just, they just look at the putt and they're like, yeah, it's going to do this, or yeah, it's going to do that. But as far as information, I wouldn't say that I recall, like, learning a ton from him. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Once you've – I mean, you may never – in one one year's worth of being on the course, you're never going to figure everything out about those greens. But as far as like tee to green, it's not that complicated. You know, a drive to drive, a seven iron to seven iron, it's all kind of A to B until you get to the greens. And then figuring out the greens is is tricky. But uh, I don't, yeah, I don't recall him really giving me any great little nuggets. While I was Do you remember there. who played, uh, who Casey played with, like in the practice rounds or like, did he play with anyone that we were like, Oh shit. Yeah. So the week before I think it was Hideto Tanihara and it might've been, it was another Japanese player, Hideto Tanihara and like, I can't remember his name. And then on another day we played with Dean Wilson and Mike Weir and Casey had known Dean from Hawaii cause they're both Hawaiian. So they had known each other for a while. And then we played in another practice round with Gary Player and Brett Quigley. And then in the tournament, we played with Fred Funk and Tom Watson. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I mean, and here's actually a, a cool story from, from Augusta is play with Tom Watson. And I remember on the first tee, the first day, introducing himself to everybody and introduced him, himself to me and told him my name was John and Hey John, how's it going? Blah, 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 blah. Get done. Shake his hand. Have a good day, John. See you tomorrow. Second day we play and Tom's playing like really well and he's well within the cut line. He's playing good. And I remember coming up the last hole. So we're coming up 18 and Casey had hit his drive into the left fairway bunker and Tom had hit his drive. I think it was in like the right side of the fairway or the right rough or something like that. But he was in fine position and Casey hits his shot out of the bunker. And these bunkers are super deep. So like when you're down in the bottom of this bunker raking it, you can't see what's going on up top. And so Casey hits his shot. I go down and I rake it. I watch Tom hit his shot. They're heading up and he hits it up in the right green side bunker. So I rake the bunker I get out of it and I'm walking up and I see Tom blast his shot out onto the green and I get up there and he hits it to like 10 feet, but he three putts it. So I'm thinking that he had three putted to make double bogey, 
which still put him on the cut line, right? And I'm like, okay, you know, he did three putted for double bogey, but at least he's going to make the cut. Get done playing. Everybody shakes hands, shakes my hand, says, hey, John, nice meeting you. Best of luck to you in the future. With a smile on his face, you never would have known anything had happened. We get done, and I look at the leaderboard, and what I didn't realize is he had left a shot in the bunker. So he had left a shot in the bunker, blasted it out, and then three putted for triple bogey to miss the cut by one shot. And so what blew me away is you never would have known. Like the guy had to be devastated. I don't know how old he was, but the chances of, I, I doubt, I can almost guarantee he didn't make a cut after that, right? Like it was his chance to probably make the cut for the last time. And the dude had a smile on his face and he, he was kind and he said my name and he wished me luck. And you never would have known that he just three putted from 10 feet to miss the cut in the Masters. And that stuck with me forever, forever, because if that guy ever had a right to be pissed off and to not exactly want to deal with this amateur's caddy that probably was in the way, you know, some of the time, like he had every right to do it, but he shook my hand, wished me luck, looked me in the eyes, smiled. And, and to this day, that's a story that I tell that, like, that said a lot about the guy to me, you know, um, because it would be hard not to be devastated to some degree at that point. <laughs> Just listening to it. I feel devastated for T for T dub. But dude, what about what about Gary Player, dude? Was his son out there? Just no, his son wasn't out there. But that was um, that was really cool. That that that's the day that I learned that regardless of their age, like there's a reason why Gary Player is an all time great. Because even that day where he couldn't, I mean, he didn't hit it anywhere. Like playing from the regular tees. I'd be surprised if there were four par fours he could get to in two shots. Like he's hitting driver three wood or driver hybrid and not even getting up to these par fours in two shots. Like he's leaving them short or he's leaving them in the bunker short, but he's not getting there. And the guy would just hit these flop shots or these pit shots or these bunker shots that were amazing. And he was just getting up and down from everywhere. I'm talking like everywhere. And I'm watching him and he couldn't have been much more than a couple, two, three over par on the day. And I'm just amazed at how well he could still play the game of golf. Like he was hitting like number one, two, three, number four is a par three at Augusta from the very back tees. It's like, I don't know. It's like 260 yards or 250 yards or something like that. It's, it's a long par three. He hits driver right over the top of the flag, like just smokes this driver down this hill, just right over the top of the flag, dude. And that was his game all day. Like his ball was right down the middle, right at his target, pitched it up there to like three feet, made the putt. Drive down the middle, hybrid up in the bunker, blasted up to four feet, made, I mean, it was just over and over and over and over again. And it was just so impressive to watch this guy who, who knows how old he was at that time, couldn't hit it anywhere, probably beat half the guys in the field that day out on that golf course. You know what I mean? It was just, it's crazy. It's just, you know, and so there's a reason why these great players are as great as they are. And part of it is their physical ability, but part of it is they just get it. They just understand how to play golf and how to get the ball into the hole. And they just don't ever forget, man. They just Dude, don't ever amazing forget. to hear that story. Did you have like any interactions with them? Or is he just, no, I mean, yeah, I remember, I mean, there definitely were, I don't recall. I don't recall a lot of them. I, I remember the one, I remember is he had hit his he had hit his shot into the back bunker on twelve, 
And I remember getting in there and he was like, you know, all these guys, they want to use their 60 degree wedge out of this back bunker. And he's like, the way to play this shot is you take your 50 degree wedge. And so he takes his 50 degree wedge from the back of 12. And so like the green is not very deep. Like it's a super narrow, super narrow green. And the whole green like tilts off right down the front edge, down into the water. You know what I mean? And so most people probably aren't pulling out their 50 degree wedge on that particular shot, but he pulls out his 50 degree wedge and just hits this little chippy rolls it out there right down there next to the hole. He's like, yeah, that's how you play this shot from back here, you know? But I wish I could remember some of the other stuff that he said, because I remember him talking and telling some stories, but I just don't remember him. It was so long ago. Yeah. But it was neat just being around the guy. It is neat being around the guy. I again. bet, man. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. Dude, do you remember who won that year? Zach Johnson won that year. Mm-hmm. It was when he didn't. He it got really cold and windy, and he didn't go for a single par five and two shots. He laid up on every par five and won that year. I think he made like ten birdies on the par fives or something like that. Something crazy. Damn. Did you did you like see Tiger at all at the range? Yeah, I mean there was there was one day in particular, and I don't remember which round it was. But me and Case were out hitting on the range, and we were on kind of like the left side of the range, and there was only a few stalls left of us. And Tiger and Steve and Hank Haney came out and started hitting balls, and they were three stalls down from us. And I, Tiger didn't play – he didn't play great that day. And so I'm guessing it was after the the first round would be my guess. And um, – and I remember just watching him and, and there was like a big golf channel thing about it because it was during the time when him and Hank Haney were kind of like button heads. And it was, I think it was right before they split up, I believe I'm not positive, but I think it's right before they had split up and he had went and worked with another instructor, but you can just, it was just interesting seeing their interactions. You know, it was interesting seeing their interactions down there, but yeah, it was, that was one of the, I've seen Tiger up close hit balls a few times and that was one of the times, but it's, it's always unreal when you're right next to Tiger Woods because you see him on TV and he's kind of like this. It's like anytime you see like a super popular person, they're, they're almost not human. And then you see him and you realize, wow, this guy's like a human being just like I am. You know what I mean? He's just really, really good at golf. Um, but I, I think it, of the times that I've been able to watch him hit balls or be close to him, it's always been pretty cool. You know, the guys, I mean, the Tiger Woods, I mean, 